Did everybody catch that poem? And it was like, sort of flew right by you. All right, let me just read it one more time. Um, this world's just mad enough to have been made by the being his beings into being prayed. Let that screw with your mind for a second. Um, so what we heard was the Palm Sunday story, the classic story of Jesus coming to the city. Um, that's what we're talking about today. But we're also in the middle of this series of conversations we've been having right over the uh, last couple months since January around these six, what we think are kind of keystone um, aspects of doing church or what Root and Branches should aspire to be. We talked about community, personal transformation, social transformation, purpose, and today's topic is creativity. All right, so creativity, right? The idea is simple one. It's just that church and Christianity, religion, ought to be a creative space, right? In the sense of both literally creating stuff, uh, making new things, and also pushing a sort of mindset of imagination and originality. Creativity is, is sort of, you know, you can kind of hear it as like one of these um, MBA buzzwords maybe, right? Like innovation is one um, that always comes to mind. I was just this last summer invited to a Christian innovation workshop where they had all a bunch of weird church nerds thinking about what innovation looks like for Christianity. And there was like, we were in this fancy um, co-working space where all the walls were whiteboards. So it's like, hey, what's the thought? And you like write it on the wall. Anyway, so it has this kind of vibe, right? You might get this kind of sort of MBA vibe out of it. But um, I think it actually does make sense for us to think a little bit about what undergirds something like creativity, right? Because I don't think you can actually think about creativity without thinking about the conditions from which creativity comes, right? So I want to ask us as a community right now, have a little discussion, quick question. Think about what you think the conditions for creativity are. They can be um, conceptual, like time, or they can be uh, very material, like I can't be creative unless I take a giant hit from my vape pen and um, have a cup of coffee or whatever, right? Like those, those two kinds of things. So think about, if you have an answer, let's hear it. Inspiration. Like I feel like I can't fabricate creativity. It just needs to. You need some sort of spark for it. Brain space. Brain space. Any, any more on that? Mm-hmm. And for me, there's no space for creativity. Um, I guess that also could be a time thing. Sure. For me, I need to be alone. Solitude. Oh. Like in the kind of space where I'm alone. Yeah, adding to that quiet and then having open mindedness. Open mindedness. I need to like physically move. Like, obviously, if I'm writing something, I just need <laughs> at a desk. But before I can start to do that, I have to around or I do a lot of good brainstorming when I'm in a job. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes like stress makes my mind wander and sometimes that can go to creativity. 
So like something to de-stress? Yeah. Do you have something that de-stresses you? Wait, so you're saying stress helps you be creative? I think it can. Oh, okay. Too much can be crippling, but like a little bit can, can like stir things up. Sure. Emotion. Emotion. You mean like in that proactive, proactive sense or like being like, open? I would say it's in the absence of, kind of in the brain space thing, it's like the absence of constantly reacting to stimuli and uh, you have to have enough space to where you're not in a purely reactive state that you're actually, you have room to, uh, whatever the opposite of reacting. Right. The room for choice. Gotcha. This one's not very productive, but like after I've had like a beer and a half, I get a lot more energy. But it has to because like once you get to three, that's true. I write all these sermons when I'm very drunk, so I, I feel you on that. <laughs> Some aspect of discipline is necessary, maybe. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but. Necessity. Necessity. Sometimes, like, there's something isn't working and you have to figure out another way to do it. And brain space or not, time or not, it, you have to dig into it. All right. The mother of invention, someone said. Um, I, those are all really good answers. Um, a lot better than the ones I found online. <laughs> so, I mean, these are a couple like lists that I found. One says like, you need spaciousness, constraints, inspiration. You need to love your ideas into existence. Another one said, create space and time, stick it out, make mistakes, embrace humor, keep a light hold of it. The Harvard Business School, um, which I thought was weird, but after, actually, actually hear, after hearing you, Kirsten, talk about this, it makes a little bit more sense, right? They wrote, you need to take care of yourself, sleep and eat well, um, and then also like maybe practice breathing, mindfulness breathing and that sort of thing. Um, so these are all conditions for creativity. I think they're, uh, we can debate some of the finer details of them, but what's missing, I think, from this list, I also didn't hear anyone say is that, to me, the single most important aspect of creativity is this thing we call permission, right? 
maybe we all sort of assumed that as a precondition for creativity, but um, without permission, none of these things will really be useful to us, right? To bring uh, new things into this world, to have a certain type of imagination hinges on our sense that we're allowed to do that. We're allowed to live this way, right? Whether it's um, maybe permission from your authority figures, your bosses, your parents, um, your teachers, uh, your friends, or maybe just you're giving yourself permission as well, right? Uh, we, the underlying condition for creativity is that belief that it's okay to do this thing. I think we understand how important permission is when we reflect on how damaging um, a lack of permission can feel for us, right? I imagine we've all had some experience of doing something in our life, often when we're young, and being told that we weren't uh, good enough or talented enough or shouldn't do it, and how much that affected us. Um, Y'all see me singing these days, and um, I would never compare my voice to like Michael Bublé, <laughs> Josh Girl, you know, someone who has like a nice, beautiful voice. It gets the job done, I hope. Um, but I actually spent most of my life with my mouth shut, um, all because of this one single experience I had when I was a little kid with my brother. We were at home. I can remember a lot of the details, like what the chairs looked like that we were sitting in and what room in the house we were in. And, I think my mom was like telling us to sing this like hymn, and um, he told me that I had a terrible voice and that I shouldn't sing. Now, to be fair, I had just told him the same thing right before he told me that, so he's not like evil. But that little experience, right, really changed the way that I saw my ability to sing. I mean, singing is its own weird thing where like, if you never hear yourself recorded, or no one ever tells you, you don't actually know <laughs> whether you're good at it or not. Um, there are a lot of people I know in this world who think they have amazing voices, and I want to be like, hey, just like take your iPhone and put the memo on it. But to hear that, you know, it was the first time it, I heard someone say something about my voice. It really sucked that um, sense of permission out of me, right? And these words stuck with me for years and years and years. When I picked up guitar in junior high school, um, I picked it up not even thinking of being a singer at all with it, right? All I was going to do is just play guitar. I was in all these bands in high school and later, and every time I was always just like the lead guitar player. I never sang um, ever. One time I formed a band with these friends of mine, these friends who were like really great musicians, and I wanted to be in a band with them for so many years, and finally it was happening. I was so excited, and we, were, we had this meeting, and they were like, okay, um, let's get us, we need a singer. And I was like, well, I could try doing it. And they're like, no, 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 you can't sing. Let's get a singer. And so this like, you know, can really change the way you look at yourself and the way you live in this life, right? Ultimately, I had to sing out of necessity at my parents' church, so I did that. And then, you know, permission in some ways finally came to me when I moved to Chicago and some other church decided to like hire me to sing, and I was like, oh shit, like, maybe I can sing enough to get paid for it, then I can sort of begin to change that mindset, right? But that permission had to come to me at some point. All these big and little experiences we have of not being given permission to do something, right, um, like I say, can really stick with us 
They can be a trauma that we carry with us for the rest of our lives. And church is a place where many of us might identify with this sense of lack of permission or being told you can't, right? There's this story about Christianity that says that it's not a creative venture, right? Its primary task is to teach you to believe and think and do the right thing, that you're supposed to follow these orders, right? Dogmas, doctrines, creeds, um, ethical doings and non-doings, right? Um, we have stories in the Bible of people being handed these laws and given strict orders and told to obey. God speaketh, we listen, right? Sunday school teachers and youth pastors and um, associate pastors and pastors, whatever other leaders and pastors you have in the church, right? They speak and you're supposed to listen, right? Then that critique of religion comes both from inside the church and outside of it. And I think it's a tragic unfortunate reality, but also a tragic misunderstanding about what this whole project is supposed to be about. Ironically, if you look at something like science, it can sound in one way in a certain light, a lot like this description of religion, right? You have a universe of laws and materials, right? And we are bound by them in a certain way. Uh, we are powerless to change them in a lot of ways. Our mission is instead to learn and understand them. Right? Yeah, when we think about creativity and innovation, the world of science and tech and so forth have almost a monopoly on what we think, what space those things ought to belong. Right? The problem to me is not that constraints exist, right? um, that we have history, we have sacred texts, in the same way we have laws of physics and chemical reactions. Right? In fact, constraints are necessary for creative thought, just as much as, you know, if you make uh, choices without any constraints in your life, right? Some would say that's not actually freedom, but more like chaos, right? You need constraints to actually have something take a shape, right? We need canvases, we need tools, we need um, all that stuff. That's all a part of it, right? So the problem is not constraint as much as it is, again, this thing about permission. God can look to us like a stern schoolmaster with a rod in hand, um, dumping heavy textbooks on you, telling you to sit still. Or, and I like this better, God can look uh, like, um, what's her name, Miss Frizzle? <laughs> in the magic school bus, right? Or the sort of amazing teacher that we've all wanted to have. Or maybe some of us had the privilege of actually having, right? God is this person who opens the door to the classroom and you look inside and there's like colored paper and glue and those like markers that you like pull off and you can't help but <laughs> keep sniffing and, um, and God's like, go forth children, play, make, make stuff, <laughs> make what's in your heart, right? It's a very, two very different images of God. Let's come back to Palm Sunday for a second. And let me allow me to set the stage for you. Um, it's the week of Passover. And that's the backdrop of this, which is a big deal for the Jewish people, right? So from all around the region, they're going to come to the holy city, Jerusalem, to celebrate and be together for this very, again, important um, uh, ritual in Jewish culture. At the time, Israel is under imperial rule by the Romans. 
And as we see, even in our democratic, free country today, um, if you're smart, you don't let a bunch of people gather who might have a vendetta against the state without flexing some muscle, right? So around the same time as all these Jews are coming to Jerusalem um, for Passover, the Romans are giving a demonstration of their military power, right? a military parade, if you will. So on horseback, they would be marching around in the streets of the city, uh, like a scene from Game of Thrones or something, right? And it's no coincidence that at this time, Jesus decides to stage his own little march. He calls in the story for a cult. Uh, other gospels say it's a donkey, right? Or whatever, it's at least this kind of sad and not very intimidating animal. Maybe it looks like Eeyore, um, at least in my mind. And Jesus had developed quite a reputation at that point, right? He's and walking around for like three years, um, doing all this teaching and like feeding a bunch of people and um, defying authorities. And so he was like the people's champ, right? And he comes in, sauntering in on this donkey. The people are lining the streets. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, literally translates into save us. But in this circumstance, it was uh, a cry of praise, right? The same Hosanna that the Israelites would shout to like King David or these kings they had back in the day, Hosanna, right? So the story we hear is one where there is a resistance, there is a, a rebellion that arrives to overthrow the imperial march that's taking place on the other side of the city. That's what we're to remember and celebrate on Palm Sunday, this triumphant entry, the, really one of the few and um, certainly the last kind of triumphant moment in Christ's life. But with some perspective, we who have uh, the privilege of knowing the rest of the story, we know that this is not um, a triumph because Jesus is like, you know, Luke Skywalker or something about to blow up a Death Star and everyone... Um, cheers for it, right? It's a triumph because of a particular kind of revelation, I think, that we have of God. Right? We see here a revelation of a God of peace and not of war, a God who is with the humble and not the mighty. Right? We're supposed to be celebrating, I think, a God who plays by different rules, who affirms a different kind of power, inspires a different kind of hope, taking what we thought we knew about the way things worked and turning them on its head. One interesting way of looking at this is through, I think, maybe the lens of protest art, right? So Jesus as um, Pussy Riot or Banksy or something like that. Is that a, a cringe for the... Oh, okay. <laughs> I used the word dick pic in last welcome table, so I'm just trying to like get them all in a bingo. As we, right? And so Jesus says protest art, right? I think um, good art, all arts, but really good art, what it ought to do is give us a certain kind of permission to see the world differently. I think that's really important, right? And that kind of permission is like not a small thing. You know, we all know this famous picture of um, uh, Barack Obama. He's... He's bending over, and there's this young child who's black, touching his hair, the hair that's very similar to his, right? That kind of permission to believe that the world can actually be different is what you need to actually make the world different in a lot of ways, right? So it's not a small thing. 
Yet at the same time, to kind of relegate this Palm Sunday Jesus moment to uh, protests are, I think, also um, makes it a little lacking at the same time, right? This is the strange thing about Revelation, which is that anybody who actually sees it will misunderstand it. The very people who are um, shouting Hosanna, right? waving these palms, they've missed the boat entirely, right? And had they known what they were actually witnessing, they might have thrown their branches down into a big pile together, right? And I sort of imagine this looking like you see when you see a bunch of protest signs just jammed into a circular trash can after a protest, right? Like uh, the abandonment, the anger, like we're done. So it's not permission alone that sparks creativity, right? We also need a certain kind of revelation that is capable of opening up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and minds. Throughout history, Christ has had a lot of names. In fact, Christ is its own name. But one of the names is the Great Revealer. Christ, the Great Revealer. Christ is the revealer who marches into this city not to fight, but for what? I think to ask us, what is it that we are hoping to actually create? This professor uh, C. Clifton Black, he wrote, far from flexing his royal muscles, Jesus acts like a tourist. On close inspection, Mark has not narrated a triumphal entry He has lampooned it. If all we seek to create is what we know, I'm not so sure that we will actually ultimately like what we do make. Those in the crowd, they would have imagined a triumph of war, right? But a donkey is no uh, mighty weapon, right? And God, um, with apologies to all those who wrote the numerous hymns of bloody army imagery and so forth. God is no great warrior king. You hand a kid some tools, you invite them in to that classroom and you say like, create something. And nine times out of 10, that kid, if they are like me, will take that paper, draw um, that sun in the corner, in the top right corner, and then proceed to make a bunch of really ugly Ninja Turtles, Um, always standing on a hill somehow. (laughs) And as a teacher, as a teacher might say to a child, um, I think Christ the Revealer, God says to us, hey kid, you can dream a little bit bigger than that, right? So both permission, but also then a challenge. And that is the kind of creativity I think um, is worth pursuing in a community like this, in churches, um, in our lives. So back to that question, what is it that you are trying to create? What is it that you're trying to create? Think about that. I hope that this question will be um, one that 
sticks with you, that you ponder over these next two holy weeks for us. Um, when your meditations and your prayers may guide what you ask for yourself, for this world, for people you love. Um, may it, it turn the world, if not upside down, at least a little bit askew. May it empower you to both uh, believe that, yes, you can create something, but also give you pause to dream a little bit bigger about what that might be. What is it that you are trying to create? Let's let that question accompany us uh, again over these next two weeks through this story of the passion, um, through betrayal, through death, and maybe then all the way to resurrection. Amen. that, you know. Given the history of this world again, this is actually perhaps the most unique, um, radical, and revolutionary idea that there is. It's uh, an idea big enough to change our society, change our world. Amen.